Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra and elsewhere, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. If you're listening on release, you'll already know that it's AFL final season and that, as I speak, Richmond is still in the running to repeat their 2017 victory. Fans have long argued that football is more than a game, but few have done what George Megalogenes did and written a book suggesting that it's the solution to a nation's political issues. George discussed this book, The Football Solution, How Richmond's Premiership Can Save Australia, at Richmond Library on Election Day in 2018. It was a fascinating discussion that wound from the history of Richmond and Collingwood as clubs and as suburbs through to the state of affairs at that time in Australian politics. We've really enjoyed it and we hope you do too. On to David Harding for George's introduction. George McElgenis is an author and journalist with three decades of experience in media. The Australian Moments won the 2013 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Nonfiction and the 2012 Walkley Award for Nonfiction, and formed the basis of his ABC documentary series, Making Australia Great. George is also the author of Faultlines, The Longest Decade, Australia's Second Chance, and The Balancing Act. Well, he's all that. He's also a massive Richmond fan as well, <laughs> and he's here to talk about his latest book, the Football Solution How Richmond's Premiership Can Save Australia. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Thank you all for coming, especially on election day. Uh, quick show of hands, who's pre-polled today and who voted? Okay, this is very, very typical now, isn't it? Yeah, I put mine in last week and when I woke up this morning and saw the rain <laughs> beating down over our roof, I thought, no, I wasn't going to be queuing for a, uh, for a ballot. It's got a couple of things I want to talk to, uh, to about this book because it's been on the road now for about five or six months. The book itself coincidentally was released on the day of the Richmond Collingwood uh, home and away game in late July of uh, 2018 this is the year we're still in but the season's obviously well and truly over now and that was the one where Jack Higgins managed to kick that extraordinary uh, scissor kick goal for goal of the year we were on the cover of the footy record that edition which is I think the equivalent for a rider uh, to be on the cover of the Rolling Stone. If any of you remember that old Dr. Hook song? <laughs> I'm going to buy five copies for my mother. So um, the intriguing thing about the intriguing thing about where where books are released into, uh, often you can you can get the timing um, categorically wrong. So you may be one of those poor authors in about 2000. And four that was anticipating if Mark Latham didn't win the election that year, he'd certainly be around at the next election to win a subsequent election. And this is even before his diaries were released. He's had five books published over the course of that um, political year. There was uh, one of them, of course, ended up with the with the sad ending of him losing the election. But I was always conscious of not just that particular example in the political sphere, but very early on when Paul Kelly released the first edition of The End of Certainty. The End of Certainty was predicated on the John Hewson victory in the 1993 federal election. Now, Paul had written a brilliant book on the 80s and was obviously able to repurpose the second edition with, uh, with a new introduction that explained why uh, Paul Keating, not John Hewson, was Prime Minister for the, uh, for the first significant term of the 1990s. Now, I always have these things in mind when you, when you write non-fiction, and the the sort of unintended gag in this particular book was in the sort of formative stage of this book where I'm trying to get my head around why Richmond still means so much to people and uh, those of us who were around after the premiership in 2017 would have felt the earth move on Swan Street after the game. <laughs> I mean the month itself was quite a uh, quite an unusual month I think we're an entire city because there was no other Melbourne based team uh, in the grand final, entire city projecting on this fairy tale. Uh, Rob, Robert Murphy, who had lived the experience with the Western Bulldogs, but as a as an injured captain and spectator rather than a player, he said it explained later. He saw that he thought that the 2016 grand final was felt at a suburban level, whereas the 2017 grand final was felt at a citywide level. 
Now, it intrigued me almost from the get-go. If I thought I was going to write a sort of extended love letter to my club, I would. Um, <laughs> I was more interested in the why there were that many people uh, after so many years felt such a collective release around not just the grand final but that entire final series. And it sort of forced me to look back to the foundation of the game itself in Melbourne in the 1850s and then certainly into Richmond's foundation as a club because Richmond's one of the younger, in quote marks, one of the younger clubs in the in the old VFL. Richmond and Collingwood were the last two of the first of the 12 VFL clubs we would have grown up with uh, to have been um, formally established as a football club. And in that sort of little journey exploring, um, exploring the sort of historical record, sort of lifting some old, some old rocks up to see what was underneath, it was pr pretty clear that two things were happening. One, the foundation of the football code here was a middle-class sort of citywide experience. It was, a, it was a form of entertainment. And it was a game uh, for one of another, uh, you know, convenient piece of social glue that bound all the um, different migrants that were coming in to Victoria around the time of the gold rush and through to the end of the 1880s. Uh, very, very uh, intriguing diversity when you think about Australia today. When you look back to the 1850s, 60s and 70s, this is really the only other equivalent period, I think, in our social history where we've had that many people coming at once from overseas and from different parts of the world with, I would say, middle-class expectations, not the expectations that my parents' generation who migrated uh, after the end of the Second World War, who came from broken countries and were starting at the bottom of the pile, and you sort of measured their progress through the, um, their home ownership and their kids' sort of advancement through the university system. So thinking about the way the game begins as a middle-class game, and it's a form of entertainment, and by the 1880s, you were getting some very, very interesting crowd attendance figures uh, over the course of the city. So there's, a, there's a, what was then a very famous game between South Melbourne and Geelong for the right to decide who was the Premier that year. It was literally the first grand final ever played. It wasn't a grand final as such, but it happens in 1886 towards the end of the, uh, the, the very long boom of the 19th century in Victoria. 30,000 people have come to this game uh, at the Lake Oval. Uh, about 8,000 people, maybe fewer than 8,000, have come from Geelong. They took some special trains down from Geelong. Uh, and a couple of South Melbourne fans had sort of laid some interference across the railway track to try and stop the, to try and retire the carriage because they were hoping for a forfeit because that would have given them the premiership. They made it anyway. And the accounts, when you read the accounts of this particular day, they're very, very familiar a hundred and something years later. And you're always surprised as a historian when you, when you find those little echoes from the past and you, once you get your head around the social setting, you understand what the echo or what the repetition in history is. Now this particular game always intrigued me once I read about it because 30,000 people in those days to go to a suburban, what was it, essentially a suburban football game was 10% of the population of Melbourne at the time. Now give or take however many thousand came from Geelong, it's still 10% of the population. Richmond come into being, uh, came into being the year before and it was a pretty ordinary VFA team and it took them a long time before they get their um, they, they get their invitation to join the VFL. They weren't one of the foundation clubs of the VFL in 1896. And in fact, they were bottom of the ladder in the final season of the old VFA before it broke up. And then they were bottom of the ladder again in the VFA when all the good teams had left it. So they weren't necessarily the best team at the uh, end of the 1880s into the 1890s. But in these formative years, when a game that begins as a middle-class game suddenly becomes very tribal and very working-class in, uh, in its focus. A team like Richmond, which wasn't that good, and the neighbour Collingwood. Are there any Collingwood fans in the room? There are some Collingwood fans in the room. Okay. So the first and probably the most significant thing I discovered was that Richmond and Collingwood were the best of friends right up until the grand final of 1919. And by the best of friends, I mean that when Richmond joins the VFL, Collingwood flicks them some of their old players to sort of prop up their team. They were neighbours in many ways. They were neighbours in, um, in poverty at, uh, through, um, through the depression of the 1890s and in the aftermath of the First World War. They were neighbours in poverty. They were basically the same tribe uh, in terms of their Catholic religion. And they were sort of broken off from the rest of the city because... The way, the, the way this place laid out and the way Collingwood laid out and especially Richmond laid out, they're on the wrong side of the arrow. So they got all the, all the muck from all the, 
light industries that were around at the time. And because the land use here was always mixed, residential plus industry, uh, industry had a habit of crowding out uh, most of the good land, especially after the end of the uh, uh, land boom of the 1880s when most of the middle class left Richmond, and put this particular suburb and the neighbour Collingwood and their neighbour Fitzroy and their neighbour Carlton and their neighbour North Melbourne, you see the grid pattern we're, we're, we're starting to develop here, all very, very poor, uh, uh, more industry, more slum than your standard residential house. The thing that connects all of these foundation, um, notwithstanding North Melbourne's position because they came in later, all these inner city uh, football clubs, is that most of the people uh, that were living there were lifers but a good proportion of the population were always leaving for the suburbs. And uh, I'll, get to the, I'll get to the Richmond population story in a sec, but this is a roundabout way of coming to the accident of the launch uh, at a Richmond-Collingwood game. The first third of the book is really about the foundation of the club and its relationship with Collingwood. And it's when those two clubs fell out, and they did fall out because Collingwood uh, didn't like losing, and they certainly didn't like losing to the kid brother. And even though they won the premiership in 1919 because they got a rematch, I think if we'd had a rematch uh, in September, we, we, might have, uh, <laughs> we might have won it quite comfortably. We would have certainly would have, wouldn't have waited to the last two minutes like West Coast did. <laughs> Just leave that one as an aside. But the intriguing thing about, and this is the thing that we wrote into, we, we extracted this particular uh, section of the book for the footy record. The intriguing thing is that once the rivalry took off, and the rivalry takes off, the end of 1990, it's really the 1920 season where the thing really takes off. All through that decade, but especially beginning with Richmond and Collingwood, and to an extent Carlton and Fitzroy, you are getting uh, the sorts of crowds at home and away games that are the equivalent of 50% of the suburb. So you imagine, just physically imagine, half the population of Richmond, the then population of Richmond, heading over to Punt Road. Half the, and you could walk to the Collingwood ground, you could walk from Victoria Park to Princess Park. It's quite an interesting urban infrastructure if you think it through. And it's not something that was planned because the city of Melbourne sort of begins around the same time that they invent this game for themselves. And then all these inner city suburbs are closed off from the rest of the city at around the time when rugby league is coming to Sydney. And it's an important comparison to make because here we already had the infrastructure for mass participation and mass attendance in sport. In fact, if you're designing a 21st century from scratch, it would look like this one, not like Sydney. And you can get around by foot or by cable tram in those days. And that established, I would argue, that establishes a connection that goes back so many generations it doesn't really matter if it says... 3121 on your driver's licence. You could be living in Glen Waverley or you could be living in Queensland. If a generation or two there were Richmond supporters or Collingwood living here or Collingwood supporters living in Collingwood, that connection has already fused into your DNA. Now, why is the story interesting? It's just the happy accident of having had a Richmond Collingwood beginning to this particular book with a book landing at a home and away around when we're playing Collingwood. Now, I happen to believe that I brought a curse on the club because having identified, having identified this great rivalry, I know a lot of Richmond supporters uh, quietly uh, observing, sometimes angrily, sometimes sort of with an exasperation, that Collingwood did copy our blueprint from 2017. They hang on to the coach, the coach grows a beard, learns to hug his players. The players themselves are encouraged to do what they're good at, not being berated for the things that they can't do. And they ride a wave of feral support. Ours is obviously a little more uh, demure, but certainly just as... <laughs> this is the bit that if I was ever to make a prediction, you'd never make a prediction in a book like this with its shelf life coming out in July. Now, whether we won the premiership or not this year didn't really matter to the book because the last third of the book is about how we won that premiership and what it means for public life in Australia. But looking back on it, the prediction I would have made is this rivalry isn't over. I bet at some point they're going to learn what we did to win that <coughs> premiership in 2017, and we might in the short term pay a prize for it. Um, but I didn't know that until yeah. after the event. I certainly felt it on the day of the launch, because uh, I had a couple of minutes at the end of the, um, at the president's function at the MCG. It was also the Alana and Madeline round. 
a particular game and there was only a couple of minutes we only allowed we allowed each other just a couple of minutes to talk about the book because there's 600 people in the room and you can imagine if any of you have ever been in that room uh, they're in a hurry to get out to the ground to start yelling and they don't want to be they don't want to be uh, given a little history lecture about a game in 1920. Um, just that's I sort of give this way, by way of introduction by way of extended introduction to not underestimate the story of a suburb like this even if you've never lived here don't underestimate this particular suburb story and I think the other part, and I'll get to it later in this, this sort of presentation part before we have our conversation, these things are unique to Melbourne. Uh, Port Adelaide might argue that in the South Australian competition, the Fremantles, East and South might argue it in Western Australia. But when I look to New South Wales, and I've just given a presentation to the, uh, to the National Rugby League, the Australian Rugby League Commission, uh, on demography. Now, I can't give you the details of that presentation because it's closed doors, but there was one thing I did for this presentation which I wanted them to understand the difference between not their code versus our code, but the difference between the cities. When Rugby League comes to New South Wales, when it comes to Sydney, it's 1908. It's the first year of the professional competition of the New South Wales Rugby League. That coincidentally is the first year of Richmond and the VFL and they're the worst team of the competition on entry. Very strong VFA club, but they sort of are brought down a level uh, on entry. Richmond's first game, by all accounts, was seen by 8,000 people at Punt Road. The four games of the first round of the New South Wales Rugby League, uh, they played two double headers in two venues, 4,000 people at each game. So Richmond, in its first game at Punt Road, is the equivalent of the entire attendance of the first round of New South Wales Rugby League. Now, why is this important? It's more important to them, I think, than it is to us, but we shouldn't underestimate how uh, accidental this particular attendance story that we keep telling ourselves is. When Rugby League comes to Sydney, the settlement is 120 years old. Sydney begins as a garrison town. It has no centre to speak of. So this particular event for the, uh, for the Rugby League Commission is out in the Blue Mountains. So the only reason I can mention it is Peter Beattie, against my better judgment, told people he was also taking a briefing on demography, so it's sort of publicly knowable. The car ride out to Blue Mountains is a couple of hours from the airport. About an hour and a bit in, there's Penrith. And the driver is, I was talking to the driver about how it is you might be able to get a family on a Friday night to a football game. How do you get them out of school? Any Sydney siders here? We lived there a long time. Yeah, so how do you get them out of school in time? Changed, fed, changed. It just doesn't happen. It can't happen. It's just impossible to do. And it is literally the layout of the city. It's almost impossible to imagine the 60 or 70 or 80,000 people at a home and away game on a Friday night at the MCG <coughs> being replicated at any of the big stadiums in Sydney for a home and away game. Origin is something different. So origin, origin through the, on a Wednesday night, and basically they clear the town, both Brisbane and Sydney for it. But these, these habits of ours are formed, I said by accident in a way, but aided and abetted by location of stadia and the public transport network that feeds everybody back in. And you can't do this, it's too late now anyway in, in Sydney. And in fact, while I was writing the book and I'd I sort of passed up the temptation to write about it because uh, I'll tip for anyone who writes in non-fiction, the last thing that comes across your, uh, your uh, computer or comes to your attention as you're writing is probably the least interesting thing by the time the book comes out, <laughs> three or six months later. But there was uh, earlier in this year, uh, earlier in the year, a big brouhaha in New South Wales about the demolition of one of the stadiums and the refurbishment of the other. And the government had to backtrack really, really quickly because the taxpayers said $2 billion for a couple of stadia that we don't go to or $2 billion to fix the public transport system. They, and it was quite an easy choice to make. Here, you can imagine the MCG is starting to run down. Would people say, and I'm pondering this question myself, would people say, no, no, let it rot, we don't go there, um, fix the train line for me. I think people would still want the Citadel um, in its sort of best working order. Now in this particular, there's only one bit of data I'll, uh, I'll share with you that was in this presentation. I did a comparison between Richmond and Marrickville. Marrickville being the equivalent inner city suburb uh, to Richmond with coincidentally the Tigers as its, uh, as its local team. 
Now, Bale Manor more Collingwood than... Oh, maybe they're not more Collingwood. Are they more... What are they? More Fitzroy or more Essendon than, uh, than Richmond? Yeah, more Fitzroy. Yeah, as, as in terms of their performance. So very... Um, uh, you want to love them, but in the end, that club, that club was bound to be merged. Fitzroy obviously sort of disappeared to Brisbane, but, but Balmain uh, merged with uh, the old western suburbs. So they're, they're now the West Tigers. The end of the Second World War... Uh, the Balmain story and the Richmond story you'd think are equivalent stories so the Marrickville and Richmond stories are equivalent stories uh, a whole lot of post-war migrants about to come in whereas a lot of local born are leaving for the suburbs so the transfer from a predominantly white population about 90% Australian born at the 1947 census by about 71 uh, 20 or 30% of Marrickville is born overseas with the single largest group of the Italians. In Richmond, it's a bit sharper. Just under half are born overseas and 20 percentage points, so just under half of all the migrants here are born in Greece. And that's the story in 71. Now, when you look at the Richmond Australian-born population, the overseas-born population, attendances, there's basically quite an interesting correlation through the 50s and 60s. Attendances are flatlining. Richmond's performance is falling off the cliff, but the club is about to come back. Balmain are, starting to, are going to be winning premierships around the same time that Richmond are winning them. Attendances at Redfern Oval are here. Attendances at Punt Road Oval are here, literally double all the way through. And uh, one of the commissioners is a guy called Wayne Pearce. He, uh, he was goggle-eyed at the at the statistics. He went to Marrickville High himself and he remembered all the Italian kids coming in. The punchline for them was not, you got a crappy code and we got a great code. Um, as people left Marrickville, they're not in any position, depending on where they ended up, they're not in any position to come straight back to the game on a Saturday or a Sunday. They, play sun they used to play Sundays in the 60s and 70s. And as I say again, happy accident. But, and here's the, um, here's a, I'll give you a couple of thoughts now. A couple of interesting things I uncovered as I was sort of looking at the suburban story. So there's a lot of there's a lot of social history in there, and there's a fair bit of football in there. Uh, the last third is obviously with leadership lesson. But one of the interesting things about Richmond in the 50s and 60s as I sort of watch it evolve from a, a sheltered, uh, working class, very Catholic uh, suburb. Not sheltered, a closed off. Sheltered is, it implies comfort. There wasn't any comfort there. As the place is sort of responding to migration, uh, and I wasn't aware of this, I sort of knew this in my family story, but I wasn't aware of it. The migrants themselves started leaving for the suburbs around 1966 as well. So through the second half of the 20th century, the population in Richmond by the end of the 20th century is halved. And that is a big thing for an inner city suburb to lose half its people in absolute terms. So it obviously lost many more Australian born than it lost migrants. But the Greek population in Richmond's peaked in 66. So you'll find a lot of them now in Oakley, Doncaster, Templestowe, Box Hill and the like. They move, again, like a lot of the local born move. So I'm beginning to wonder, and I do spend a bit of time reading up on this period, whilst we're winning these premierships, the suburb itself is in decay. And some of you are probably old enough to remember this. I was probably old enough, just old enough to remember the stench as you came over Richmond Station on the way to Flinders Street Station. My dad used to work in the Roselle factory, which was on the Yarra side, and that wasn't a pleasant place. You always held your nose if you're on one of those red rattlers and the doors and the windows were open as you pass the Roselle factory. When you look down over that overpass, you saw pubs and tiny houses, beaten up backyards, corrugated tin roofs. And I know, and again, you sort of remember these things as a kid, the sort of tipping point for me when I came back to Melbourne at the end of two, at the end of 1999, I was looking for property here to buy a small apartment, and Mum said, "I'll tell you what, if you buy here, I'm never visiting." <laughs> this is a suburb people live. This isn't a suburb people come to, and these these thoughts are uh, 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 sort of in the back of my mind, become very front of mind, just to describe what happened to this particular suburb. Uh, through the second half of the 20th century. Now, I left this bit out in the book, but it's, uh, it's certainly one of the things I've sort of picked up since I've been on the road, because I was just in Geelong the other weekend for the Geelong Riders Festival. Think about Geelong's attachment to its club, 
Richmond's attachment to its club, equivalent. Through the 20s, when you look at how each of them celebrate their drought-breaking premierships, Geelong's first premiership in the VFL in 1925 is 39 years after the last premiership, which was that VFA premiership in 1866. Half the town comes, comes out at night to, to greet the returning heroes from the MCG who came in on the trains. Uh, there was politician after politician after politician. That was the one good thing about 2017. We didn't have politicians all lining up to, uh, to greet the players. <laughs> But that particular town and Richmond had equivalent stories at the end of the 60s and early 70s when manufacturing uh, had peaked and started to come off and then through the 70s and especially in the 80s when the Labor government started pulling down the tariff walls. Geelong was always fearing the loss of its car plant. People in Richmond here were always fearing the loss of their factories. Whilst they might not have been the most pleasant places to work in, they did deliver through most of the 50s and 60s full employment. Now, when most of these factories are, uh, are empty at the turn of the 21st century, at the end of that recession we supposedly had to have in the early, early to mid 90s in Victoria, Geelong's still got its car factory, but it's lost its, it's lost pyramid. So it's lost its building society. They've had a financial crisis and they're in a bit of trouble. Roll forward, I'm going to roll forward because if you roll forward to the present day and you think about how the absence of that Ford Motor Works leaves a permanent scar on the psyche of Geelong. And you think about the Holden plant in Dandenong. Uh, some of you might remember when Dandenong had a really, really strong, when it was a growth suburb, but a really strong VFA team that was always on the television uh, uh, playing grand finals against Port Melbourne, which was Richmond's oldest rival from the VFA. Geelong is not going to be in any position to recover anytime soon while that building sits in the middle of the town as a reminder to a recent past when men could work, could have, when, you know, men that didn't go to university but did have a tertiary, did have a, a, a TAFE training or a particular skill set could, could look forward to a full time and a well paying job too. Here, and I've been thinking about this a fair bit uh, as I've been touring this book, this town, sorry, this suburb has been able to repurpose all the old buildings that used to be a reminder of that sort of light industrial and sort of sweatshop textile, clothing, footwear, matchstick making was a bit more of a, a grand factory, the Rosella factory. All these little factories here, what are they today? They're apartments, gymnasiums, cafes. The suburb itself has been able to repurpose these things and you've almost washed away the memory of what the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s and 90s were. And the point about the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s and 90s is whilst uh, people watching Richmond on the TV might think this is a very vibrant little suburb. It wasn't necessarily the happiest place in Melbourne at the time. Now there is a bit of a competition between Collingwood and Melbourne in the history, uh, Collingwood and Richmond in the history books, to, to work out which was uh, the poorest suburb in Melbourne at the time. Now, just thinking this through, what's happened here in the last 15 years? So some of you who are familiar with the suburb post 2001 only know it for its gentrification. Now I mentioned between 47 and 2001 the population of Richmond halves. What do you think has happened in the last 15 or 16 years? It's doubled. So basically all the population loss of the, of, the, of the previous 50 or 16 years has been recovered in the last 15 between the 2001 and the 2016 census. A typical person in Richmond in the 50s and 60s would have been a, a lower middle income working class, whether they were white or they were migrant, uh, more likely, more Catholic than the, than the city and the state at large. Now the typical resident of Richmond, so of working age, is either a professional or a manager, less religious than the population at large. So I, you know, the, the social historian in me looks at this and thinks, magnificent story for the inner city, but part of me is thinking again about Geelong. Part of me is thinking about how this little growth miracle in the 21st century can be translated. And you sort of use your football analogy to think it through. You could think about any, any town in Victoria at the moment that isn't attracting people, point one, and is actually losing a lot of its young to places like Richmond. Uh, so it's a combination of those two things, not attracting an overseas born uh, migrant, not attracting a skilled migrant, and losing a young person. The wedges that have been created now between you know, a bouncing suburb like this and our middle ring and certainly our outer suburbs and especially our regions is a wedge both on financial opportunity and age. 
ethnicity, I'll put ethnicity to one side. Age is now the big divider as we sort of look at um, the way our cities and our state are uh, shaping. Now all these thoughts are not supposed to come out of a footy book, but I sort of deliberately stitched in some of these uh, observations because whilst I would have loved to have written a book about footy, I don't think I could have sustained it for 80,000 words uh, with any credibility. I think there are much better footy writers out there than me anyway, so I stuck to some of the things that I knew. A couple of, a couple of bits that uh, I picked up afterwards, and this goes to the revolving door of leadership, which is the Richmond story. Now, the Richmond story, even when they were winning, was if you missed a year in the finals, the premiership coach would be shown the door. Tom Afey wins four premierships and gets a runner-up in, in, a, in a sort of eight-year period between 67 and 74. What happens to him in 76 when they miss the finals for the first time in ages? Off his head goes. Goes to Collingwood the next year, so the Collingwood parallels are quite interesting. He uh, gets him to a grand final the first year. Takes him from the bottom of the ladder to the top of the ladder. So the guy can still coach. And the sort of seed regret is planted from that day onwards. They're always trying to get Hafey back. And in the 80s, of course, they're trying to get Sheedy, who's gone to Essendon and won a, prem won a couple of premierships at Essendon. So Hafey goes after winning four premierships. Tony Jewell wins the premiership in 1980, misses the finals in 1981. Off his head goes. Francis Burke gets them into a grand final in 82, misses the finals in 83 and off his head goes. Now you can see the parallels obviously in federal politics, I won't <laughs> spell them out because people listening to this podcast do not want to hear the names Kevin, Julia, Tony, Malcolm and Scott. Um, so that, that the first part of that story is quite well known. The second part which people forget is that having exhausted all, all other options, Richmond went back to Tony Jewell in 1986 and he wins him a wooden spoon in 1987. So my question always was whether Kevin was Tony Jewell uh, having won Labor of Premiership <laughs> in 2010, loses his job, 2007, loses his job ahead of the 2010 election, comes back in 2013 and wins him a wooden spoon with their lowest primary vote since the Great Depression. Now that being the Richmond story, that Richmond story obviously repeats in the 90s with John Northey's uh, departure. Northey takes him to preliminary final. In fact, he doesn't even get the opportunity to have a bad season after his preliminary final in 95. They sacked him then and there. Or technically he left, but they wouldn't extend his contract, which is what he wanted to do. Now, I hadn't realised, well, I sort of did, but I didn't want to give him any credit because I didn't want to waste a chapter on Carlson. But if you... Oh, sorry. No, I did... I, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of lines in there quite... People who played for Carlton look, look more like the people I grew up with than Richmond did, because Richmond's still a fairly white team in the 60s and 70s when, you know, I had my sort of big, um, you know, my first, my first heroes outside of, the, outside of the family home. But Carlton ended up doing something similar. So Jezza, their coach in 79, wins the Premiership as captain coach in 79. He sort of equivalent of our Northy. Didn't even get to experiment with failure the next year. There was a boardroom coup, president gets knifed, and he walked out of that general annual general meeting with his president, uh, who would have been George Harris at the time, went out with his president and didn't and went and coached St Kilda the next year. One premiership coach. David Parkin, much to our uh, pain, Wins a couple of premierships as coach of Carlton in 81 and 82. It was the last grand final before 2017. He's out the door at the end of 85. Robert Walls wins a premiership for him in 87 and he's out the door at the end of the 89 and then they go back to Parkin. But whereas Jewel won, on a wooden, won us a wooden spoon, Parkin won another premiership. Now, the thing about the, the blokes who used to run footy clubs in the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, and it's not just Richmond, as I say, it's also Carlton, is... Relative to the people who ran footy clubs at the time, they were pretty, um, pretty well educated, better educated than, the, than your normal CEO in those days. Most of them were ex-players, had a very, very strong business connection, but they governed through fear. They thought the best way to motivate performance on field was to show the players after a single bad year that if you got rid of the coach, you're next if, if we have another bad year. But the other reason why they would get rid of the coach is that, and I'll spoke to a couple of people about this and it was explained to me. It was actually, they thought in those days, a good marketing ploy. You don't tolerate failure. You tell the members come back next year because 
like you, we really felt the loss that year and we'll be better off under this new coach. There was always, there was always an element of renewal. Now, thinking through why politics ended up in this space, politics ends up in this space for structurally very different reasons to, um, and we maybe, maybe tease out the political analogy and the questions if you want to talk politics today on <coughs> election day. But I never thought in my sort of political life that the, that the thing that I loved most in my childhood, which was football, would somehow have uh, sort of an analogy to be drawn from it. And obviously we're familiar with what happened with Richmond and its rebuild. Uh, and by, by the way, this is a rebuild that took them many, many years to get their heads around because they had to repeat the mistakes of the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s through the first decade of the noughties. In a way, what they were trying to do when they didn't have a good team was recreate that that sort of uh, well, sort of motivation through fear that they had off a good team when they were getting rid of the coach and all the players would just sort of pull together and win another flag. Why did Richmond and Carlton continue to do it through the 70s, 80s and 90s? Because on, on the surface it appeared to work. That wasn't the reason it worked. It worked because they were powerful clubs, relatively well run compared to the other clubs at the time, but they were in a closed competition in the old VFL. So <coughs> They had the best players. In the context of the AFL, Richmond could not continue to behave the way it did as a Victorian-based club, especially when the talent pool was spread a lot thinner and with salary cap and with draft. Uh, you had to be patient to get back into, into the finals, but they never thought that way. They thought just cherry-pick the best player from somewhere else, sack the coach, we'll be fine. It's interesting that Carlton is still behaving this way, up until recently, Carlton thought that Chris Judd could get him a premiership, and then they thought Mickey Malthouse could get him a premiership. Uh, whilst we're not ultimately disappointed that Collingwood did learn some lessons from us, I expect Carlton are looking at our model quite closely. In the re-engagement uh, in that sort of Brendan Gale, Peggy O'Neill era for the last few years, I think the first step to the rebuilding of that club was the acknowledgement that the way the club was run was affecting the on-field performance and it wasn't the other way around. It wasn't, you know, we got unlucky in this draft or so-and-so had a problem or, you know, there was a super team that the VF, that the AFL had sort of um, built up like a Brisbane Lions or something or, you know, Adelaide was too good or West Coast was too good. It wasn't any of that. It was the fact that the club was badly run. And I think what happened once they acknowledged that and once they started sending all the flyers out to all the, all the laps members, people like me, there was, I think, a recognition amongst a lot of us that now this sounds like an intelligent group of people have just taken over this club and they're promising us achieve, you know, sort of on-field success after they get the back office stuff worked out first, after the club is viable again. And that almost re... Um, sets your, or almost retrains your brain as a supporter to think long term. Now, as I say, the analogies for politics are pretty obvious, you would think. If a political party is trying to restore trust in its brand, whether it's Labor or Liberal. One of the first things it needs to do is the thing that Gough Whitlam had to do for the Labor Party in the 60s. And Gough referred to the three Ps, party, program and people. The first thing was to fix the party, which is in the in the sort of Brendan Gale, Peggy O'Neill um, uh, concept. It's sort of that 2010, 2011, um, clear the debt, rebuild the footy department, uh, kick the cricket club out of um, Punt Road, get the playing surface of Punt Road to be the equivalent of the MCG, just basically get the infrastructure right for the team to be able to develop. The program is essentially the sifting of the list and through long-term development. And the people is the premiership, is making finals and then winning them. Goff's three Ps took about six or seven years. Uh, he almost got there in 69, but he got there in 72. And the first thing he needed to do for that party, and if you think about some of your contemporary examples here, you needed to get out all the fanatics. So there was a big problem in Victoria with the Labor Party that made them unelectable federally. The sort of hard left of the trade union movement was in charge of the administration of the party down here. Labor, even though this is a fairly cosmopolitan, you know, sort of more centre-left than centre-right state, 
was on the nose in Victoria for a number of decades because the party was run by hardliners. Now, does it remind you of anyone on either side? <laughs> and in this state too, coincidentally. Coincidentally in this state. So first they had to get the administration right. To be, to be match fit to contest at federal elections, they needed their party to operate like a mainstream political organisation. The program are the policies, so you know you don't want to belabor the analogy too much. But if you if you wanted any political party to understand what Brendan and Peggy did, and before then maybe what happened at Geelong um, with um, Frank Costa and Brian Cook, and probably what happened in Hawthorne when they came out of their near-death experience with the merger, is that they patiently rebuilt the administration first, was honest with the members about membership about how long it would take to fix this thing, and weirdly. People will buy that, and when your club is competitive again, you actually get a ground swell of support. So when I look at the sort of 100,000 that turned up for the, um, for the grand final parade and the other 100,000 are going crazy here on the Saturday night after the grand final, slightly different demographics if you think about it, or maybe the alcohol had sort of changed the, uh, changed the balance. Just quickly, <laughs> I always think about this, we went, I brought my family back here, we went for a wander up Swan Street and couldn't stay all that long because it was nuts. Um, everywhere we went, you know, there was either one group sort of jumping on cars or there was one group that started the song, another group was halfway through it. So everywhere you, you, you walked, you got a, everywhere you walked, you got a different echo from the theme song being sung by a group of five or six people. We whizzed up Lenox Street just to show them where um, my dad lived for a little while in Richmond in the, in the 50s. And by the time we got to Bridge Road, everyone said, this is where all the insiders viewers are. By the time we're at Bridge Road, <laughs> they're all wearing their scarves, sitting out of their restaurants, and the people are jumping out of the restaurant to give everybody a high five. <laughs> so they're a much more, um, much more cerebral audience. But for all that, for all that to click at the same time, I don't think you know if they'd magically pinched a premiership five years ago, that would have happened. Uh, and I don't think, and I argue in the book that I don't think if Trump had been president in 2016, uh, people would have felt this quite the same way about and Brexit had happened, people felt quite the same way about their sporting team. The street party we threw reminds me of the street party the other year that Leicester threw after they won the, their one and only English Premier. So Chicago went a baseball bracket drought of 80 odd years, uh, just on the eve of the presidential election. I saw the, the sort of that little Google, um, uh, what is that thing we, I watched the, uh, the live, um, what is it called? Yeah, it's a live feed, but it's a live feed outside the ground, and so you're not watching the game, but you could on some on some uh, on some website. A few people apparently were clicking in on my Twitter feed. Everyone's saying, "Have a look at this! Have a look at this!" There was a lot of people out there, and then when they finally won, the explosion felt like, and this is before ours. I kept recognising some some sort of repetition in these stories. Um, that connection to club, I think, is a projection of identity onto something that's simple, that has a community focus, that sort of lets everybody in, like you're all welcome, or you're not here because you're a member of the Christian right or you're a member of the Green Left, you're here because you're another human being that's had a similar, um, not necessarily a similar upbringing, but you know, your family story or your story in the schoolyard at some point equates. And it's interesting that something as simple as sport could be the common language in what are otherwise very, very um, disillusioned times. Now our, um, our membership base is what, at 100,000 now? A bit over 100,000? That is equivalent to the combined membership of the Labor and Liberal parties mm. today. The four uh, smallest, I mean the least popular, however you want to describe them, uh, VFL te AFL teams, Victorian based teams in the AFL. Uh, they have combined membership between the four of them that exceeds Labor, Liberal, Green and National. It's quite an interesting thing to think about. People aren't joining all that much, but each year more people are joining footy clubs. Uh, this did interest the NRL because one of the graphs, when I sort of teased out the Richmond graph, which is the attendance graph versus Balmain, uh, there was a line that went through the roof and that's the crossover point where more people actually had a Richmond membership than would go to the MCG for a typical home game and it shot up like this and they're all looking at that one going what's that again I said 100,000 people are members of this club 
Now, across the 18 clubs, the AFL, uh, there are a million, just over a million members for the first time on record, which exceeds the coverage that the trade unions have in the private sector workforce. These are, I'm trained as a pattern spotter, so when I see something like this, I think it's telling you, it's telling you another story, isn't it? It's telling you something a little more significant. Now, uh, I'll just take one step back because I think we've got time for questions. Uh, I should leave time for questions. The revolving door since this book has come out, uh, obviously it was spinning again with the <coughs> Peter Dutton challenge against uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, Peggy O'Neill was <coughs> going to come here, but I don't think I see her in the room. She texted me uh, in the middle of that week at the, uh, towards the end of the evening saying some friends of hers had just noticed that Amanda Vanstone had gone on the drum and was quoting the example of the Richmond Football Club <laughs> and sending a message, some of you might have seen it, sending a message to her colleagues in Canberra not to sack the coach, oh, not to sack Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was... And I did get another round of um, media requests to talk about the Richmond lesson for the Liberal Party. But the second part, and this is this is probably a little closer to home for me at the ABC. That argument between Justin Milne and um, and Michelle Guthrie. So who watched the Four Corners all the way through? Who couldn't watch it all the way through? Is anyone else? Yeah, I couldn't watch it. I couldn't watch it to the end. Uh, I don't know Justin Milne that well. I know Michelle quite well. And I knew all the other players, obviously. The issue there. Anyone had done a regular director's. Uh, course would know that the board sets the strategy, does the governance, the management runs the organisation. Now, the single most important thing that Peggy brought to the Richmond Football Club, and I'm not sure every club under quite understands this particular part of the lesson, the board isn't there to sit with the coach on game day to ask the coach why he moved so-and-so into that position or to sit with the recruiter during the year and ask them why they went for that player and not that player. The board members aren't there to take selfies with Dustin Martin and then show them on their phone to their mates when they play golf. That's not what a board member at a football club is. Through the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, one of the, one of the repeating themes in sort of Richmond's um, craziness is that the people that ran the club behind the scenes actually wanted to be in the football department or wanted to be out on the field themselves but clearly too old to do that. And Peggy had worked out this nice line of uh, patter. It wasn't, you know, don't be an idiot, you know what your director's duties are. Now, she's not here, this is not exactly how she said it, I'm paraphrasing. She would say, oh, if you're interested in football, maybe we're wasting your time here on the board because we're not here to do the football. Maybe you should apply for a job in the football department. <laughs> Either Michelle or Justin should have said to the other, Justin, if you want to run the ABC, why don't you apply for the, the head of the news division? Or why don't you apply for the head of the filmmaking, the documentary wing, uh, it's now branded as entertainment? Or if he might have said to her, if you're interested, not interested in running the organisation in a, you know, with an eye to the content, maybe you should apply for a, 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 a spot on the board. Governance, you would think, is a, is a very simple thing. Uh, uh, knowing who's in charge, knowing what your roles are and not getting in each other's way. The ability to share power, the ability to, to, to specialise and to stick to what you're best at. The person at top knowing when to intervene and when to rise above, when to delegate. It's the big thing that's been missing in corporate Australia big thing that's missing in corporate Australia over the last few years. Certainly you've seen, it's unusual to see it at the ABC, but the ABC is the most recent example. But a lot of the trouble we <coughs> see in the political sphere is all the energy now is focused in the leader's office. So even now we've just changed Prime Ministers for the third time on the, on the Liberal side. And we did a couple obviously on the Labor side. From the day he became Prime Minister, Scott Morrison without an electoral mandate and clearly the way the opinion polls pan out, not that I want to comment on opinion polls in particular, uh, the public are a bit annoyed at what happened, not at him necessarily. He's governing as if he's the only person in the country at the moment. So some of the announcements he's made without consultation, uh, people say, how could he have 
made that decision on the Israeli embassy. Well, I think he made that decision knowing that if he'd sought advice, the answer would have been no, because they'd considered it previously. He wants to be able to show people he's in charge and he wants to be able to do it as quickly as possible. Uh, it's hard to separate my political analysis from my reaction as an as a ordinary citizen, but try and pretend I'm not analysing, I'm just reacting as a citizen. I want that bloke to shut up, but I want every one of them before him in the same position to just shut up. And I don't want him to shut up because I don't like him. I want him to shut up because whilst he keeps talking, I almost know intuitively that he hasn't figured out what he wants to say. And that's, um, and he is trying to win a premiership. And he's trying to win a premiership immediately. And he's trying to win a premiership without letting his team play their game, uh, without letting individual ministers talk to their particular portfolio. It's his message and everything else is blotted out. Uh, it's, um, it's in the culture, unfortunately. It's not, it's not something that people do deliberately. It is what the culture is today. And as I say, the fact that we're able to project as, as a citizenry onto sporting teams, plural, not just, not just the Richmond Football Club, the fact that we're able to present, project onto a football club some, some idea of better governance tells you that community spirit out there is still for a better way to run things. So I'll leave that as the last thought, but thank you for that. I'll feed my meter and then come back and sign <laughs> some uh, books. Thank you. That was an edited recording of George Megalogena speaking about the Richmond Football Club and Australian politics at Richmond Library in 2018. We run regular author talks at all branches of Yarra Libraries, so please keep an eye on our website. For you, we'd recommend... Uh, who are we kidding? Join us after the season's over. If you're keen to read The Football Solution or any of George's other books, please pop into your local branch or place a reservation online. In the meantime, we'll be waiting to deck Richmond Library in black and yellow again. Happy watching! <laughs>